if everybody has this built-in feature where there's the self-arising sense of an I, then anybody is an I. An I could be anybody, <laughs> you know? But I, I think of myself as Caroline Savory, but when I really penetrate that concept, when I really look at, you know, who am I? Who, who is this I? I see that it's empty. Welcome to Infinite Conversations. My name is Marco Morelli, And my guest in this episode is Caroline Savory, who is a multimedia artist and writer and a consultant for democratically organized groups, such as cooperatives and collectives. I met Caroline at a workshop in Boulder, Colorado, on the topic of ownership and art, which she was facilitating. At the time, I was looking for help with the cooperative I was organizing, Cosmos, and Caroline turned out to be the perfect fit as a collaborator. Over the next couple months, we probably had over 60 hours of dialogue, much of it hashing out the structure and identity of the co-op, but a lot of it also philosophical in nature. When it came out that Caroline had some ideas she wanted to share in response to a podcast we both had listened to recently, serendipitously, we recorded the conversation you're about to hear. That podcast was an episode of Buddhist Geeks titled Secularizing Buddhist Ethics, where host Vincent Horn interviews scholar Stephen Batchelor, and they discuss whether and how the Buddhist concept of ethics needs to be disentangled from the early Indian metaphysics in which it arose, to better reflect contemporary Western values and interpretations. As it turned out, that was the last episode of Buddhist Geeks, after a 10-year run, including hundreds of podcasts. So in a way, Caroline and I were seeing this talk as a continuation of that stream of wisdom which had been a source of inspiration and insight for both of us. Caroline and I have continued working on Cosmos, and this is one of our first productions together. If you like what you hear, you can support this podcast at infiniteconversations.fm, subscribe for updates, and join the conversation in our forum. Also check out our co-op for visionary minds and bodies, or embodied minds, Cosmos Cooperative at cosmos.coop. This is part one of a three-part series with Caroline Savory on Buddhism and secular ethics. Maybe we should talk about, like, I should say what my relationship is with Buddhism, just for just context okay. for, for you, because we're getting to know each other as well, and Buddhist geeks, and how I know Vince, because it kind of all connects. Vince and I worked together at Interval Institute like 10, 12 years ago, and so that's how we met. And then from there, he went on to, to start Buddhist Geeks. And so, but I've never considered myself really a Buddhist. And at the same time, I've, um, I'd say I'm a casual student of Buddhism. Uh, but I've been, I'm a meditator, and I've, Buddhism has been central to informing my practice of meditation. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing that for 20 years or so. so and it's just kind of like what I do. Uh, but I wouldn't consider myself a Buddhist geek but I've been a fan of the show and I've been a friend of Vince's and uh, like his thinking, his work has influenced me in a number of ways. Like when we did the book club, we called it lit geeks and that was kind of a play on Buddhist geeks. Uh, and so we've been in this sort of meta dialogue in a certain way at that, you know, not intentionally, but just in terms of like the play of our respective projects. So um, I don't, the thing that what arose for me as an idea is like, wow, you know, if you still want to do podcasts I and mean, why don't we, continue the conversation in some way. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and in terms of my personal interest in that, um, I, I think my years of experience on the Sustainable Project in which I was doing a, a lot of research, but also a lot of interviewing about people, about how they define sustainability, that that gave me certain skills to ask to lead into deep territory, like with provocative questions and interviewing in general is actually, it's a, a Buddhist method as well. Um, you know, the di- the discor- discursive and dialogic kind of aspects of certain Buddhist practices, but yeah, interviewing um, is, is a, I, I find it can be, it can produce a trance like state um, actually, and really synchronize people's minds. Well, so the, I, I happened to listen to the secular, secular Buddhism podcast. Um, and it was really stimulating to me because I, I strongly identify with some of what Stephen Batchelor is trying to accomplish with, you know, reminding us that um, what the essence of Buddha's teachings are about living a good life and really realizing within one's life principles of basic goodness or the kind of gaining an understanding of basic goodness of being alive. And therefore then it transcends or in a sense, it doesn't need its religious colorings, its religious inflections to be relevant to a lot of people. And I think Marco, you're an example of that. Somebody who meditates for the benefits that meditation brings into your life and that's enough, you know, <laughs> maybe that's all that, you know, that that's plenty for us in terms of cultivating a certain kind of consciousness that benefits you. Right. So I, I really strongly identify with what, with what Stephen Bachelor was talking about. Um, and I heard some things in there though, that really brought up for me why that's a compelling concept. Um, and it go, it actually goes beyond secular religious and, and gets more into, um, what is the nature of our, of our existence in terms of having bodies and minds? Um, like what's the role of having bodies, right? So, and I have, you know, it's been, I've been vaguely aware for um, many years now that I might have a distinctly unique perspective on um, that matter because um, before I came to Buddhism, so back so I came to Buddhism, I should say, uh, in, in 2010, as a result of having a transcendental experience that shattered me psychologically in some ways, because I couldn't reconcile how real it felt in contrast to the 23 years of life that I had just lived feeling unreal suddenly. Like, how, how is that possible? Right? It was very, very upsetting and disruptive. Um, So I I came to Buddhism through having that experience and being at the time in close union, communion with an individual who had been practicing Buddhism for five years and was kind of a a transformative presence in in every social interaction um, in this particular scene that I was in with him, not just with me, but with others. And so I had this experience and I knew that he was like the only one who could, who could have understood it. So I immediately went to him and started talking to him about it. And um, he helped put it in the context of Buddhism for me through sharing texts and 
speak and um, speeches and things that really like it, it just made so much sense to me in light of what had just happened. So that's what set me on the Buddhist path. But prior to that, back in 2006, when I was around 1920 and I was in college, I was reading um, Gretel Escher Bach, uh, The Eternal Golden Braid by Douglas Hofstadter. And Douglas Hofstadter is a person for, who has made his career out of studying artificial intelligence and trying to really understand what is consciousness, what's at the heart of consciousness, along with his colleague, Daniel C. Dennett. Um, and they, they take a secular approach to this, but they're really interested in consciousness and, you know, what makes something conscious versus unconscious and how that relates to computer science and things like that. So that book, first of all, is a narrative masterpiece, the first half of it anyway. The second half is about computer science, but the first half is, is just really about how consciousness, in Hofstadter's view, is built up through analogy, through exposure to analogies, and um, kind of the journey of, this, of the individual differentiating oneself from one's environment through interactions, and in the process of that, gaining a sense of I-ness, you know, I am whoever I am, as distinct from my environment, right? And it was through Hofstadter that I became aware of the Santiago School theory of cognition, which um, by Humberto Maturana and Francisco Varela, uh, who were uh, cybernetic social scientists, whatnot. Um, and the, the two defining statements of the Santiago School theory is, quote, living systems are cognitive systems, and living as a process is a process of cognition. This statement is valid for all organisms with or without a nervous system, end quote. So those are kind of the two founding statements of this theory of cognition, which really relates, I think, to certain um, ideas of recursion that Hofstetter also elaborately talks about in his book, and he draws upon Escher heavily to illustrate this, because Escher has those famous tessellating drawings um, where, you know, the shape of the frog makes up the body, the shape of the frog's body makes up the shape of the swan's body or whatever, and they, they, they kind of uh, iterate like that, right? So concepts of recursion, I really see a connection there because what this is essentially saying is that bodies cognate, like having a body means that you're automatically cognating. It doesn't matter if you have a nervous system or a brain or not. The process of living is a process of cognating. The two are one, right? Um, the body comprises the mind, comprises the body. And I find this to be really really powerful. In some ways, it aligns with Buddhist teachings, and in some ways, it seems to contrast with that. Um, so that's where the, it gets really juicy, I think. So I'm going to talk about that a little bit, if that's all right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, on the one hand, the body-mind feedback loop, this kind of is, is what I would kind of describe as the present moment, right? The present moment is a synchronized body-mind feedback loop. Right, and it's constantly changing because bodies constantly are changing. Um, and in that sense, like that's all we need. That's what meditation is, right? We just we we are kind of just inhabiting, fully inhabiting 
this experience and that's enough and that's plenty of information in fact the more we practice drawing our attention to that and really inhabiting that the more our awareness expands and our sensitivity expands um so and on the other uh, you know consistent with that is the idea that um the body you know i strongly feel as a buddhist that the body is the vehicle for enlightenment that it's not about transcending or somehow departing from or you know like the spirit leaving the body so much as it is going through the body um and the body's experiences to attain enlightenment and here's one way that i kind of talk about this um i was born you know in 1986, I am a white female American. Um, and to the extent that those conditioned features of my existence uh, actually color my existence, like, you know, being female and how that affects my interactions with people, right? I exist to bear witness to that to what that looks like, to, to that full experience. And in doing so, it's my responsibility to share that ins those insights with others. And the more that we actually do that for each other, you know, number one, fully bear witness to our experience without judgment and all of its suffering and all of its, you know, blisses, um, and share that with each other, we are kind of bringing the whole into a higher resolution picture. I kind of think of it like pixels, you know, for each of these little units of consciousness. Um, you can have really low information, low resolution experiences, right? When, when someone's, you know, awareness is very dim or, you know, is very uh, controlled by, by certain boxes of ideologies, or you can have really high resolution experiences where, you know, people are really open and sharing a lot of who they are and a lot of their energy comes through, right? And that's what we can do for each other through our bodies. And the interesting thing about bodies is like, right, what is, what is life except bodies that propagate themselves? If you think about what a body is, it, it arises out of DNA. And DNA... Um, is a pattern, right? But it's also a protein. And the emergence of DNA historically, in terms of the evolutionary um, thread, was unique just insofar as it was a self-replicating protein. Like that is the, the only feature, <laughs> I would say, to what life is. It's something that self-replicates, right? It's negentropy. It just reproduces itself through bodies. It always has a physical form. And the physical forms themselves are shaped through interactions with their environment and with other, which includes other life forms. So in each one of our bodies, we carry with us literally the legacy of all interactions and all and all successful reproductions in the history of the world. And so there's a lot of power in our bodies. And I think, you know, especially for for westerners there's a lot of power in remembering to, to sing and practicing synchronizing the mind and the body together because you know so here's here's one of the ways in which this whole fix you know focus on the body would seem to contrast with some buddhist teachings and that is something i hear in a lot of teachers 
Srinas or Gurdada Maharaj. Um, gosh, I can't even think of all of them, but countless teachers teach this concept. You are not the body. They really emphasize you are not the body. And I think I get what they're getting at with that. I think what they're getting at is that you're more than the body, which is true. This, you know, the sum of my experiences is not the sum of myself. Um, somehow there is a consciousness, and I think that, that is through our interactions and in, through our interlinking, that is beyond us. We are, be, we are beyond the sum of our sensory inputs, right? Some of our experiences. And, and I think also what that's kind of trying to say you know, because perhaps it's, it's the more traditional way of talking about you are not your ego. You are not, your little individual body is not the most central thing to the whole picture of life propagating itself, right? And that is an important thing to be aware of. We are, you know, the individual human body, like my own, is just an ant in a colony of life. And capital L life is what we should be trying to support and pay attention to and, and you know, propagate. And we, we do that, again, kind of fractally through our own lives, oftentimes, but to remind us that, you know, it's not just about your, your little projections, your little uh, emotions and experiences and feelings. It's more than that. And that's an important teaching. But to say you are not the body, especially for Westerners, I think it's not a helpful teaching because most of our lives, we are inundated with messages about how we're not good enough, you know, through advertising and um, also just our racism and sexism in our culture and, and all of that. Uh, those pressures, you know, telling us that we're not allowed to inhabit our bodies and our bodies are things to be ashamed of and to be objectified. You know, as a woman from a young age, I remember, you know, really internalizing messages about how my body was to be objectified. And so I needed to relate to it in an objectified way, you know, in terms of its appearance and things like that, as opposed to how I felt in my body. It was more about relating to my, like I was a dancer and it's interesting because I, 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 it was my mind telling my feet what to do the whole time. It was never me embodying myself and really enjoy, it was like very like, you know, just dictatorial. <laughs> it's like, now you do this, now you do this because I'm supposed to. I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to, you know? And so we've really severed and, and injured our ability to, to connect with our bodies um, and to come back into that. Um, that synchronization is really, is uh, what, what I think Westerners especially need. We need to become indigenous again. We need to embody ourselves. Um, and we need to learn to sense and experience our ecosystems and our role in them. And, you know, the, being as that's what's lacking, I think what the you're not the body teaching leads to, if you get attached to it, is this idea that, yes, yes, like the mind is superior to the body. We need to indulge the mind and that will eventually transcend the body. You know, you see it in this transhumanist philosophy of like, eventually we'll just be disembodied consciousness floating through space, you know, and we need to colonize other planets. That's an orientation to life that is colonialist, you know, 
But there's another orientation to life that's indigenous. And it says you belong in your bodies. All you need to be is your body. And you need to cherish and honor it and go through it to fully realize harmony and peace and freedom from suffering. So I think there's this subtle distinction that doesn't quite get made effectively all the time, which is that it's true that you're not your ego. And that, in fact, tapping into consciousness that transcends your little self and is actually, you know, a, a complex of other beings' consciousnesses and other patterns interacting with you, tapping into that is important. Um, but that means you're not your ego. It doesn't mean you're not your body. So, in essence, what I think is really powerful about Santiago School is that it says that your body is all you need, <laughs> you know, to awaken. And in fact, that we are all proto-Buddhas, right, which is another teaching of the Buddha. We're all Buddhas because every body has an inborn drive to self-awareness, to understanding what is the self truly in relation to these other phenomena. Um, so, yeah. What if we were just bodies, <laughs> just bodies who were like ants, you know, little, little manifestations of a pattern of life and the pattern that is life, especially now with the ecological crises that are, that we're facing at a global scale, that's what deserves our full attention, you know, and our full commitment of our lives um, is to really honor the conditions for life. And actually that gets to my unique idea of what karma is, mm -hmm. that I don't know that anyone else shares. Um, so karma people, you know, traditionally interpret as, well, it means cause, right? It just means cause, but, but people often interpret it as um, to be related to reincarnation. Um, you know, the sense that there's some essence of who you are, and when that essence acts in wrong ways or hurtful ways, that is going to come back to you for you to face and for you to reconcile, whether it's in this lifetime or another lifetime. My sense of reincarnation and karma is that if every body has this built-in feature where there's the self-arising sense of an I, then any body is an I. And I could be anybody, you know, but I, I think of myself as Caroline Savory. But when I really penetrate that concept, when I really look at, you know, who am I, who, who is this I, I see that it's empty, you know, and Hofstadter reinforces this in his own writing. It is empty. It's this complex of, you know, habitual responses and, you know, kind of ingrained information, but it's, it's empty. I'm really just at this flow you know, flow of consciousness. So, so, you know, the eye is empty, but yet there's this persistent illusion of the eye, which every body, particularly sentient bodies have to deal with um, and have to work with. So if I could be any I, then when the next time that I <laughs> am a body, right? The next time that, that I'm experiencing I-ness, I could be in any body. And if we're leaving 
you know, anti-life conditions for other bodies to be born into, then they're going to suffer incredibly greatly. And I think that is what Stephen Batchelor is hitting at when he talks about ethics, Buddhist ethics, and the idea of what are we leaving for future generations, future us's, <laughs> future eyes, future me's, you know, because we all have that experience. And so to reduce, and, and actually the, the sense of an eye is, is the root of suffering. So, you know, we're, when we orient towards, as I do, I've made a, and, you know, this all began with kind of sustainability and environmental consciousness, and it turned into a Buddhist consciousness. But what it comes down to for me is I need to be acting in ways that contribute to life's flourishing, capital L life. So it might not be my personal life or whatever, but at the same time, I am a life form and I'm rooted in an ecosystem, in a place, and I'm rooted in these interactions. And so I need to um, act in ways that enhance the, the generative or regenerative capacity of my local and, and also global, you know, because we are globalized citizens at a certain point, um, to enhance those ca the capacity for life and the conditions for life to be happy and to flourish. Because next time I'm an I, I would like it to be a less suffer, suffering full experience, right? You know, and we have, so that's where that environmental consciousness comes, you know, comes in to play. But we, we have that opportunity if we really you know, situate ourselves in our bodies. Um, and I think that there's a lot of joy and liberation in saying, I am my body. This is my precious experience. This is my precious self-arising phenomena of I-ness, you know, like it's not anyone else's, right? And so, and also I don't need to transcend that. I can go through that. And I don't know, that's, for me, that's essentially what bodhisattvas are. They're people who stay behind, right? As opposed to like, I guess, turn into some disembodied consciousness uh, that's free from suffering. They stay behind in human form, right? And they, they commit their lives to helping others. Um, and in Buddhism, sometimes you get a sense that like, it's not that they're less enlightened, but like that they're, that they, that they're choosing to suffer more because they choose to stay behind. But I think, <laughs> I, I strongly, you know, the Santiago School concept really, really influences me because it, it's like, that's not, a, you know, it's actually choosing to live in a beautiful way. Because, you know, maybe all we are is these bodies. Maybe, maybe consciousness, in other words, is, is deeply rooted in our bodies. And our bodies are deeply rooted in the heritage of, repro of life reproduction and evolution over time. And we need to honor those conditions and the whole of that um, and honor ourselves. And, and like, we don't need to not be the body in other words. <laughs> I don't know. That's well, well, let me, let me ask you this. Then. Um, yeah. And I could probably give a whole spiel on context for the question, but I think I'll just go into it. Mm -hmm. What is your understanding of cognition? Because that is, that's the one term yeah. in this that doesn't feel right in my body. And perhaps that's because, my understanding of the term is uh, uh, mental, or in other words, I, I associate it with a mental type of mm, uh, understanding of something, to cognize something. The, the word or the etymology of the word, I'm not you know, a philologist, so I, I couldn't really 
go all into it, but I know it comes from cogito mm-hmm. not for thinking, or I think mm-hmm. not Descartes' famous, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am. And so to cognize something seems to be to, uh, to think it in some way. So to have a, some mental grasp of it. Uh, and, um, but, but the way you're using it is different, it's, it seems to me, and it's more yeah. embodied. And I, and I don't know, I also don't know exactly what the roots of that word is, but I could, I could tell you what I, how I think of it, and especially in light of the definition, which I can, I can read it again uh, from the Santiago School, um, basically, the act of living is an act of cognating. What that means, what what I how I relate to it is that cognition is almost like the act of making something tractable. <laughs> you know, we use our minds to do that because we have nervous systems. Um, but like a thought is just like making things tractable, something that. And what that means to me is you can do something with it. You know, and so it's very rooted in doing and being. You know, um, thinking can can become abstract, but I think cognating is like really taking in information and processing it in such a way that it becomes workable. And I think in meditation, like in our journeys as human beings, that's what we're essentially trying to do with information. We're trying to like past experiences should only be with us insofar as they're still instructive, right? If we're living in the present, but a memory from the past comes up, to me, that says something in that memory was not fully processed. I didn't fully take away what I needed to, or else it wouldn't be re-emerging. Or maybe I'm triggered by certain by an emotional moment that reflects an emotional moment of the past, so it's just like kind of an automatic association. But for a moment of a memory, of a past experience to really stick with me, something may not have been digested. And actually, that's how I think of trauma and PTSD as well, um, that, you know, there you have a, a, an embodied experience that your mind f- fails to adequately digest. And so it, tor- it just is this tortured aspect of your life that, that there's this part of you that cannot understand, cannot piece together <laughs> how it could have happened that that thing happened to you. You know, it just can't make, it can't reconcile it, right? So for me, cognate, cognating is about reconciling. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, I, I realized that to interpret the idea of cognition on a mental level only is really the mistake. And whatever the etymology is, uh, which I think is not insignificant, I think the echoes and the resonances in our, in our language partly reinforced patterns of feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So I think it's important to pay attention to that because like say a word like cognating for me, and maybe this is partly just a sensitivity to language that, you know, I and others share, but not everybody necessarily shares. Like they just see it as a word, not like as, you know, this kind of rich cluster of associations and stuff. Mm -hmm. But when I, the, the word cognition suggests more of a mental I think of like a cog, like a cog in a machine. So I start going into a more mm. of a, a mechanistic type of, um, f- you know, state of mind or flow or kind of, you know. Yeah, uh, I want to talk about that. Okay. Um, because first of all, the Santiago School theory is pretty provocative to say living is an act of cognating. So it is very rich to just like sit with that. And what does that even mean? So yeah, that's, that's, but like I said, I came upon that even before Buddhism and it, it, I can't let it go. 
because it resonates so true to me on some level that even if Buddhist, some Buddhist teachings seem to contradict it, I can't let it go. I really believe that that's true. And it's a big part of how I look at life. But anyway, that they also say, you know, that even without a nervous system, living is an act of cognating. What does that mean? You know, mm -hmm. even if you can't think, how do you cognate? Mm -hmm. And here's how I think about it. We take shapes to fit our environment. Literally, bodies take shapes to fit niches in the environment. You know, that has to do with the evolutionary advantages of having a beak or having eyes or really, you know, eyes that are sensitive to this spectrum of light versus that spectrum. These bodies are this, you know, again, this capturing of energy and turning it into something that takes shapes in the environment. And what, again, what is an environment, but a matrix of both living and non-living things. Um, so we really, we take shapes to fit our environment. Humans are interesting because we shape our environment to, our, to suit ourselves, but we are also products of biological evolution. There are advantages to having thumbs, right? And hands and walking on two feet. So we are a product of that process as well. Um, and you can also think about it on a cellular level. You know, there are, um, on a cellular level, there are different shape receptors for different types of proteins. And only that one protein, unless it's an invader, will fit that lock, like a key and a lock, right? So we have, shapes are really crucial. And that's what I want to emphasize here. Like the shape of our bodies and how they interact with other beings and you know our environments it matters this is not like we need to take our lives seriously when i get in the car and drive somewhere i'm producing more carbon dioxide through the burning of fossil fuel than i would be if i biked that is a real choice it really affects real real living beings and future living beings and we need to bring our consciousness even to that level of of how we're causing karma and interactions with other beings. Um, and when I think about, you know, so in, in Buddhism, there's the concept of Shambhala or the enlightened society. Have you heard of this? Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. When I think about what Shambhala would actually look like, first of all, it would be human beings living on earth, not some <laughs> celestial sphere of angels. I don't know. Um, it would be humans living on earth. But it would be humans who practice awakeness, first of all. That's a condition of being able to maintain a harmony. But the key feature of what the society would look like is harmony. And to me, what harmony is, is fitting, right? Different tones, maybe different vibrations, different shapes, but they fit in a consonant way. In fact, they enhance one another, you know, through like a symphonic picture, a symphonic you know, moment where there's multiple voices, but they harmonize. Harmony to me is the key feature. And what that speaks to is a really special ability to fit into our environments. And when we are acting selflessly, when we're detached from our egos, when we're detached from my desires and my fear and my craving, right? And we're just like letting all that go and being equ having equanimity, we're kind of what that you could describe that kind of as being in a flow state where you're just in this dynamic living process of all of your moments of all of your interactions. 
that's harmony. That's harmonizing selflessly with your environment, you know? And so to me, that speaks to being indigenous too, like learning what your role is, what your, what sound you need to make in the orchestra, you know, and finding that heart, that harmonious point where you really are enhancing everyone you're interacting with. It's life, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's really beautiful. I have to say, first of all, uh, that's a beautiful vision. Uh, and I, I, I also see how it relates to Stephen Vince's uh, talk and how it relates to more of a, let's say, secular understanding of uh, Buddhism or of awakening or of uh, enlightenment or of realization insofar as it's um, not necessarily based on a particular metaphysics uh, that, uh, say, um, stipulates the body being separate from reality uh, or stipulates that the self is not the body. Uh, I don't think that that is really what the Buddha is saying either. I mean, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, but my sense of it is probably more closely aligned to Stephen Batchelor's sense which mm-hmm. that what he was talking about was uh living a good life uh that that sort of ethical um orientation towards pr- promoting and enhancing a sense of a, a sense of harmony uh and that the practice and the specific teachings that um, either the historical buddha has made or that subsequent teachers uh mm-hmm. have made in, in this particular lineage or tradition have been about teaching a certain way to manage or make tractable, as you, as you put it, the feedback loop between uh, experience and embodiment and um, cognition. Infinite Conversations is a production of Cosmos Cooperative, a creative co-op for visionary minds. We're a community of writers, artists, thinkers, and conversationalists who are dedicated to cultivating the life of the mind. We host public dialogues, organize reading groups, publish an online journal called Metapsychosis, and produce podcasts like this one. You can sponsor this podcast through your Cosmos membership, which also lets you participate in live events and start your own conversations in our forum. If you're the kind of person who loves diving deep into the living waters of philosophy, literature, art, media, politics, technology, consciousness, and all that kind of thing, and could use a platform that's all about supporting your creative work and intellectual life, then check out the co-op. Visit cosmos.coop to learn more. We'd love to have you as a member. Of course, you can also subscribe to Infinite Conversations on iTunes and wherever else fine podcasts are served. And be sure to sign up for our email newsletter at infiniteconversations.fm, where you can comment on this episode and find other quality podcasts as well. This is Marco V. Morelli signing off. Thanks for listening.